0: Amen. So this passage is near and dear to me. It's, um, it's one of my favorite—I uh, I can't tell if I like Matthew more than John, or but John's got a really good place in my heart in terms of or, order of my favorite gospel, not just because it has my name, but because of the poetic and literary symbolism that is found within the book. I think it's a, a very rich book, and like all of the New Testament, but very uh, very much so, John— Matthew Matthew and Hebrews and Revelation require you to have extreme knowledge of the Old Covenant. And so I'm going to make some references to verses. Um, This may be, I I do this a lot on my slides. Um, I don't bring it out during the sermon because it's, we just don't have enough time usually. But there's there's this thing, you may see it in Bible studies or books, or even in your Bible. uh, It's C.F., and then a, a verse or a reference, and that just means confer or consult. And so, if you wish to um, study more, you can write down uh, the references as we go along. There's going to be a lot of stuff that we don't uh, cover today, and um, but uh, but there will be a little note on the slide here and there. So there, with regard to how this passage informs our Lenten season, how we begin it. Um, I want to make some observations. I want to look at the nature of the the beggar and his life uh, very briefly. I want to look at Jesus' comment that he's the light of the world. That in this passage is set up and contrasted against the blindness of legalism. That is, the Jews and the Pharisees in their questioning of the man and his parents demonstrate that they themselves are intolerable or not even uh, completing the law as they are demanding Jesus to have completed it. I want to look at the man's willingness to believe and the perspective that christ brings forth as being god's perspective on the situation what god himself sees this passage is all about uh, the poetry and language of seeing going from blindness to sight going from sight to blindness and then finally at the end we see how god's perspective on the situation shines light on our moral condition before we encounter jesus and then finally our need for Christ in this season and in our entire life. So with that, I would like to just comment the the nature of this man. It, it's easy to read a passage in the scripture and not engage your mind or heart. And you're just moving along a little bit too quickly. I, I think what's striking to me about this, about this chapter is this man is not a cripple or someone who had been injured. This is a man who was born blind. He was blind from the moment he was uh, bur- born, uh, maybe even conceived. This man was, was handicapped and, and disabled uh, right from the beginning of his life. Uh, in verse 1, we see that he's born blind, or a man blind from birth. And then verse 8, uh, the neighbors and those who had seen him mentioned before he was a beggar, and they're asking, you know, is this not the man who used to beg? So in this culture uh, today, we have uh, many assistants or aides for uh, people with handicap. Um, at every office in the United States, according to the uh, ADA, you're supposed to have signs that have Braille uh, on the uh, signage and um, various capacities for consuming content. In the past, if you wished to read a book and you were blind, you would have to have someone read it to you. Uh, I had a friend growing up. His name was Sean Ruff. His mother was blind, uh, born blind, and she was uh, actually able to use the internet. Uh, She would use this little device, and it uh, it was kind of an assistance to a, a normal computer, but she was able to read and examine things and actually did her job through the internet and provided for herself. In this scenario here, however, this man's blindness is totally shaping his entire worldview and identity. He's blind, he's in poverty, he's a beggar. He's not able to provide for himself. And in this situation, he's just going around and asking for things. Now this narrative doesn't bring it out, but it doesn't even see, seem to indicate that the, the blind man even asked Jesus' help. Rather, it's bought, brought on by the disciples The disciples are struck with the brokenness of this man's condition to the point that they wish to discover why he's blind. Remember, the disciples are being taught by Christ, and as they live together for these three and a half years of his ministry, they ask him questions from time to time. And to me, it seems seems to be clear that what prompted this question was the brokenness of this man's situation. He was a beggar, used to sit on a street, blind from birth, Probably we can infer that he had few friends. He was probably a social outcast. The text doesn't say that explicitly, but I'm convinced that this man, his condition was something so terrible that when the disciples pass by him, they say to Jesus, you know, Jesus, give an account for what's going on with this man. Was it this man's sin or his parents that he was born blind? Now, they question Jesus in this way, and I think Jesus responds with a remarkable Uh, a remarkable outlook on the situation. Verse 2, as we've read before, And his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He then talks about how the, the works that they're doing, the works of God, the works that we work, they must be done while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work, but as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus turns the question on its ear. They want to know who's guilty. The disciples are asking, is it this man's sin or his parents who sinned that caused his blindness? And Jesus doesn't want to get into that blame and shame game. He doesn't want to get into assigning guilt and finding out, you know, what what went wrong where. Jesus' perspective, and this is God in the flesh, walking and talking the very words of God, he says that this man was born so that the works of God would be demonstrated, that they would be revealed. What an amazing outlook. You and I, we encounter things in our life. We have struggles, uh, suffering, death, loss, decay, and we simply respond often, uh, where, where did I go wrong? God, are you punishing me uh, with this sickness? Are you Are you Am I falling into the consequences of my own sin? And God's perspective on the matter is, perhaps you need to learn something about responsibility or avoiding bad situations, perhaps. But what's really the case is God wishes to demonstrate his goodness in the midst of a bad and broken situation. And so already in this chapter, we're starting to see the disciples see it one way, their worldview is, who sinned, the man or the parent? And Jesus's perspective God's perspective is completely different. He sees it in a total different way. Jesus heals the man, spitting in the mud uh, and then placing that in his eyes and commanding him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. This has a reference, or it it's a reminder of what happened to Naaman when Elisha sent him to go wash in the Jordan, and this comes up again. We're going to see Second Kings referenced again later on in the passage, but this think about this. This seems completely absurd. Have you ever gotten an eyelash in your eye? I was once at resource uh, two years ago when I was working in Columbus. I was sitting at my desk and I was programming along. I got an eyelash in my eye at the end of a conference call and it was so painful that I literally put it on mute, told my teammates, you got to finish the call. I've got to go. Ran to the bathroom, threw water in my eye to get it out and for 30 minutes, I was in probably the most agonizing pain of my life. It was, it was terrible. Can you imagine the idea of trying to heal someone who's blind by putting junk in their eyes, taking a bunch of dust and dirt and mud and spitting in it, now that's gross and unsanitary, and spreading it around, making a little mud pie and pressing it into a man's eye? I mean, this seems absurd. Jesus himself said, if you, you know, wish to help your brother remove the speck from his eye, first take the log out of your own. No, Jesus is putting stuff into his eye. To the natural mind, this is absurd. And yet, again, this chapter is all about perspective. God sees the matter, and that's exactly the right thing to do. Our natural mind sees that, and we say, how can that work? God comes in with a knowledge and wisdom that is otherworldly it it simply is not up for us to see it that way after the neighbors hear of this miracle the man in the story is brought to the Pharisees immediately the Pharisees jump all over and nitpick what has uh, been done by the son of man they question Jesus how could he be righteous because he doesn't obey their religious system of laws now i want to make a point clear here that the sabbath at this time uh is the law of god it was it was commanded to be uh, observed you had to take the Sabbath, and and reserve it as a day that is holy unto the Lord. But the Jews, the Pharisees in this chapter, they had so twisted the perspective of the law of God that they themselves had morphed it into their own religious system. Paul, in the book of Galatians, makes it clear that no flesh will be justified. And by by that, It was never the case that God in the Old Testament wished to have his children or the people of Israel obtain salvation by doing the works of the law. It was always, as Galatian makes clear, part of the promise to Abraham that God would bring a blessing to all the nations and that that promise would be fulfilled. And the book of Hebrews says that Abraham was righteous. He was counted as righteous because of his response in faith to the promises of God, Abraham didn't even live when the law was around. And so if salvation came about through the law, then Abraham himself isn't justified. Surely his spiritual children wouldn't be there for. So it, it's never the case that God wished for the Pharisees or, or the Jews or, or the people of Israel at all to ever obtain righteousness through doing the works of the law. But the law became to them a point of stumbling, and they, they had seen the law as a, a system of commandments to do and to uh, to keep in order to obtain favor with God. So Jesus, in this, in their perspective, is a breaker of the Sabbath because they believe in strict literal Sabbath. You don't do anything. You just sit in a chair, maybe eat a meal, stay at home. You know, don't do any work, don't travel, don't do anything. And Jesus here is is spitting in the ground and and stirring it up. He's doing work he's uh, healing someone that's that's evil in their sight John 9 16 through 17 some of the Pharisees said this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath now this is when the the aspect of the Old Covenant trial becomes a very important framework to understand this passage in the Old Covenant whenever there was some sort of sin the uh, the the people of Israel, the law says, are commanded to expel the sin from among them, and so there are these uh, systems of tribunals, uh, whether it's you know be- taken before the high priest or before a local synagogue or system of teachers. And in this case, this passage is really a trial, and so the Pharisees open up their trial with a statement. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, we're going to see in a minute how that is completely on its face, null and void. Th- those who are sitting in judgment cannot introduce evidence. Think about it like this. In a court, let's say we're doing a murder case. The judge is not able to get off of his stand, sit in the witness box, and then also admit pieces of evidence to be articles A, B, and C. That's, that's completely illegal. That's not the way a, a fair trial works. And yet those who are sitting in judgment are already asserting at the beginning of this trial that Jesus is a lawbreaker, and certainly not from God. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they sent a, said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? The blind man responded, He is a prophet. Now we're already beginning to see the doubt of the Pharisees multiplying, and the faith of the man born blind who is now healed beginning to multiply. It's, it's as if they're going at an, at a, an impasse, or, or rather an inversion of, of faith. The, the Pharisees, they are initially perplexed, and there are some who believe and say, no, he's a good man, and others who say he's a lawbreaker. And the man born blind didn't know who he was, he just was healed, and then later he says he's a prophet. But as the trial goes on and the different witnesses are brought in, the Pharisees doubt more and more, and the man born blind comes to greater and greater faith. The Pharisees' central concern in this uh, passage is how Jesus could heal if he didn't keep the Sabbath, according to their understanding. Now, it's Jesus' perspective, and of course it should be our perspective, that the the days of celebration... Uh, the days of rest are to be done unto the Lord for bending up the broken heart or binding up the brokenhearted and restoring things, but rather the Jews are just concerned about strict legalism. After questioning the man, the Jews call for other witnesses. His parents notice the two questions that they ask. John nine eighteen through nineteen. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and he had received his sight. Okay, so they're not going on the first witness of the man born blind. Okay. We're, we're okay with that. Until they called the parents of the man who received their sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? That's the first question. The second question is, how then does he now see? They want two things from the parents. They want first the matter of how, uh, who is this man? Was he really your son? Was he really born blind? The second question is, how did it happen? Because they're perplexed. They see this man according to them, breaking the Sabbath, and yet he's doing the works of God. They're completely perplexed. They can't see into the situation at all. They want to know whether or not the man was really born blind and how he can see. And so the Jews accept the testimony of the parents that he was born blind, and they have to, because every fact must be confirmed by two or three witnesses. This is a central theme of the New Testament in terms of the witness of how we know the gospel is true. That is, Jesus himself testified, but not only that, he also sent the Spirit, and through the church, we bring the the gospel to the world. And so the gospel is true because multiple witnesses testify to its truth. And this is a theme over and over again. So the Jews relent from their doubt. Okay, now that his parents have testified, we've heard two or three witnesses. Now we will believe that this man was born blind. But his parents don't offer any information to how it happened. They said, go ask him again. So, their testimony is his testimony, and yet they won't even believe that. Though the Jews feign a trial, they have already condemned Christ, John 9, 24. So, for the second time, they called the man who was born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Do you see it again? They're already, they're they're now, not only is the judge admitting into evidence and facts at the beginning, they're now coercing the witness. They're telling him, give glory to God. It's right that you condemn this man, and yet this man won't fall under their traps. No one can ever live up to one's own standards, let alone the law of God. And this is the blindness of legalism that we see in this chapter. Supposedly seeking out the truth, the Jews have already condemned Christ as a sinner before even hearing one piece of testimony concerning what Jesus had done. Not only are they blind, but they're also deaf. The man... Answers John 9:27. I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you see they're not only, not only can they not see what's going on, they're hard of hearing. Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know what he, where he comes from. So they're blind, they're deaf, and they're dumb. They, but not mute. They, they, they admit their own ignorance. We do not know where this man comes from. Now, that, what's beautiful about the language of the scripture is you can interpret it two ways. They are saying, we don't know where he comes from, uh, meaning he claims to come from God or be sent from God. We don't know if that's true. But when we see them saying that phrase, we certainly hear they don't know that he's from God. The Pharisees admit their own ignorance but as they continue to question the man his faith grows and grows and he comes at the end of this tumult or this trial to an amazing insight the blind man says John 9:32 never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind if this man were not from God he could not he could do nothing again this is a, another reference to 2 Kings 4 and 5 the man born blind was healed by Jesus and this feat was accomplished by him alone no prophet in the old covenant had ever done anything like this we know for a fact that Moses had led across the israelites not at, not only after the 10 plagues but also led the israelites across the the red sea on dry land they also went over the jordan through joshua's hand also, during the time of, in the wilderness, multiple uh, signs and wonders were done by Moses, including the raising up of the bronze serpent and the healing of the people who were, who were ill. Uh, not only that, but also the, the opening of water from the rocks in the midst of the wilderness where the Lord turns the desert into a stream. And all the prophets of old continue to do the same things. Elijah, Elisha. For example, in 2 Kings 4, uh, Elisha heals or raises a boy who was dead. And so this washing that Jesus had just uh, done by sending him to the pool of Siloam and the reference to Jesus being greater than all the other uh, prophets is, it's kind of referencing Second Kings 4 and 5. They're, it's kind of like a, if you, if you want some backstory, go read those chapters kind of thing. No one had ever healed a man born blind, and so Jesus is demonstrated in this passage as someone, capital S, someone who is greater than all the prophets, yea, even greater than a prophet could be. And this is what the man comes to see. With each passing question, the Pharisees, they grow harder and harder in heart towards God, and yet the man born blind is responding in greater faith. At the end of the trial, after they cast him out, not receiving his testimony, not following the law of God, they themselves breaking the law by not listening to a fact that was confirmed and established by two or three witnesses, they go on and uh, cast him out. And at the end of this, Jesus comes and visits with him. Nine, uh, John 9:35 through 36, Jesus had heard that they had cast him out, and having found him said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? he answered and who is he that i may believe in him what strikes me the most about this passage is not just that this inversion of doubt and faith are taking place what really strikes me the most is the willingness to believe that this man uh, demonstrates he is quick to believe what is the common uh, criticism of god's people that they were slow to believe Heart in heart, what does he? What does Jesus marvel at? The only thing that perplexes Jesus in the Gospels, he marvels only at one thing in the Gospels: the unbelief of his disciples. And what strikes me as amazing in this passage is the willingness. You can, it, when I read this passage, it's kind of like one of those uh, moments that I really feel at home with the narrative. If you remember, a few months ago I was talking about John the Baptist when he encounters. Uh, Jesus coming down to be baptized, and he, he kind of is baptizing people, and and he looks up and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For me, this passage is one of those kind of moments. This man responds in such quick willingness of faith that it seems as if, when I read it, this man is responding right at the end of Jesus' words. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And who is he? A quick response, a heart full of faith, who is he that I may believe in him? You see, the Pharisees in this passage, in their blindness, they demonstrate their heart of heart, they're blind, they're deaf, they don't have any knowledge of who Jesus is, and even after multiple witnesses that Jesus really is from God, they do not believe. And yet this man believes at the moment that the Son of Man speaks to him. Only hours before, he was completely unaware of God's grace that would be upon him, but now his natural and spiritual eyes can see. He responds, uh, Jesus responds to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This is an amazing response to a miracle that God has done for for this man. This man demonstrates to us the the type and manner of faith that is uh, appropriate to God's intervention in our life. To rather turn from our unbelief and to respond in faith. As I mentioned before, this this story, this narrative, this historical account, uh, in its beauty of literary form, it is an account, and it's it's woven completely uh, to set up a contrast between God's perspective and our perspective, between blindness and and sight. And this is where Jesus himself. The very words of Jesus give you the key to unlocking the meaning of this passage. God's perspective, as it's demonstrated in in this chapter, is, again, at the beginning, Jesus said it wasn't this man's sin nor his parents, but that the works of God would be demonstrated. So also, in this portion, he then opens our eyes to see what he is all about. He's doing an act of mercy, and yet he uses the word judgment john nine thirty nine Jesus said, "For judgment, I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may become blind, uh, those who do so may become blind. You see God's mercy is just the, our perspective on the situation. When God comes over and over again in the Old Testament, when he comes uh, in the midst of his people, God remains God, and where, at, where the people's uh, hearts and, and behaviors are uh, determine sometimes, the interaction uh, that, that takes place. What was God's command to Moses when he was visiting with him on the mountain? He said, don't let any of the people or even their livestock touch even the brim of the mountain. No one but Moses was allowed to go on up. And what this means is that God, when he comes, he comes in grace, and yet God is holy. Jesus here is doing an act of mercy, and yet he uses the word judgment. His judgment against sin is the mercy that he shows to his children. And the judgment that he makes against sinners is the mercy that he shows to his children. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now that is, to me, a remarkably different type of Jesus than what I think is portrayed in the Jesus videos Uh, that are so popular today. There's a new one coming out called The Son of Man. I'm not very excited for that. I'm more excited for Noah. I think that's going to be a better movie. Um, I think they're going to do a bad job with The Son of Man. I I don't want to say something bad about a film I haven't seen, but I don't think they're going to get it right because from what I've seen of the trailers, he sounds kind of like he's high on marijuana, honestly. (laughs) The Son of Man trailer that I've seen, Jesus looks like he's on a trip of some sort, and not to do any good. I I think that the perspective that we have with Jesus is one that, it, yes, Jesus is meek and mild. He does not burn, uh, you know, cover a, a smoldering wick. He doesn't extinguish a dimly lit candle, and yet at the same time, uh, he won't bless a candle that's burnt out. Jesus in this passage is saying that because you claim to know me, I, I am of no use for you. And this is exactly our perspective. Some of the Pharisees uh, near him had heard these things, verse 40, and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. What an amazing grace. That, that phrase right there. You see, some of, sometimes we think that Jesus is just here to serve us or to help us. And yet Jesus says, if you're not willing to be helped, I, I can't help you. Say what you want about any sort of uh, prevenient grace, or 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 what have you, whatever your perspective on how people get saved, whether it's they accept the Lord's grace or the, God's grace overpowers him. In this passage, Jesus is saying, "If you're not willing, I won't come in your house. If you're not going to open the door, I can't I can't come in and dine with you." In this passage, Jesus is setting up a stark contrast between those who are repentant and humble and those who are proud. See, the legalists had set up their own system and said only those who are good can be from God or receive favor from God or can have God hear their prayers and act on their behalf. But Jesus doesn't set up good versus evil. He says humble versus proud. And this cuts to the core of what we do in the season of Lent, where we examine our hearts for pride. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. What an amazing offer. If you would just admit that you were blind and can't see without Christ, you would have absolutely no guilt. It would be completely removed. But Jesus goes on. That's not the end of the story. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus' interpretation of the Pharisees' question is a statement. I want you to see this again. They say, are we also blind? Jesus says, you say that we see. What an amazing turn by their questioning Christ are we blind he says that they're saying we see because they believe that they can see and have no need for healing they will remain in their blindness this this passage informs us of our need for Christ if we ourselves uh believe that we're a good person apart from Christ you we're actually blind if you do believe that now that you're a good poor uh person and that you can see and that you can Uh, apprehend God and know God without the intervention and mercy of Christ healing you, then you already are blind. If you do, however, say that you're blind, you have no guilt anymore. Our need for Christ is demonstrated in this passage in that by seeking to justify ourselves, we actually remain unjustified. By attempting to do the law, we remain in a state where we can't do the law. If only we would admit to the Lord that we can't perform his law, he would give us grace, deposit his spirit within us, renew us, and write his law on our hearts. But we, as we can see, the Pharisees who demand that others keep the law can't keep the law themselves. They break their own tradition. The very law that we and they attempt to uphold, we break in doing so. This is the wonder of Christianity. The only ones who get in are the same ones who know that they never could get in. That's really what the message of grace is the The message of grace is that God himself offers you free admittance into his kingdom into his fellowship into his family if you would only admit that you're an orphan if you would only admit that you're blind and this is a remarkably inclusive uh worldview and religion I've been listening to a series of lectures by our wonderful friend I'd love to meet him. He, He's my friend from Twitter, uh, Timothy Keller. And Timothy Keller is doing this series on the Christian faith and uh, examining claims between different types of faith and atheism. And and just the, the sermon series is, well, it's not really even a sermon. They're just doing these things on Thursday nights. But it's called Questioning Christianity. It's a great thing. I, I totally recommend it. Go online. You can find it. But in that in that series, he is offering the stark and often uh, very po- uh, poignant uh, criticism of Christianity. That criticism that criticism is that all who must be, all who would be saved must be saved through the name of Jesus Christ. And what Tim Keller does so many times in that passage or in that uh, series, especially with this criticism, is he turns it around. Okay, you say that you know instead of calling on Christ, you have to be good to get into heaven. You know, the the, the common criticism is, uh, you know, why can't I just be a good person? Well, actually, being a good person is a radically exclusive uh, group of people, rather than all those who would just call upon the name of Christ. You see, the gospel is that anyone can get in if they would just admit that they need him. And to not adopt that and to adopt a view of you have to be a good person to go to heaven is a radically exclusive and very small group. You're saying that, you know, you have to have a good life and not be born with addictions or, or be born with handicaps or be born in some way that, that sets you on a path of, of sin and brokenness. You have to perform some moral law. The, the group that can, can be good people is much smaller than the group of all people who can admit that they're blind. In this manner, we only see our need for Christ. Uh, Only if we see our need for Christ will will he be of any benefit to us. This informs how we are to do our season of Lent. In this season, when we reflect on the darkness in our own lives, we must join our voice with Bartimaeus, and even though all around may shout out, keep quiet, we must join ever more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. This is the call to the gospel again every day, is that we would admit, Jesus, without you, we cannot see. You are the light of the world. Come and open our eyes to receive from you. And this is what we must do in the season of Lent. We must look at our own life, examine the things that are, that are wrong, repair them or remove them if they are things that we should be doing or things that we shouldn't be doing. And in that manner, we must cry out for mercy. Bartimaeus is probably a, a, a very similar situation to this, but he's a blind man. He sits by the side of the road and he calls out, "Son of David, have mercy!" They tell him to keep quiet and to, to shut up, and that's what our flesh does, and sometimes even our friends. When we're examining things in our life that are dark, that are that are that we're ignorant about, that we're blind concerning, and we wish for God to remove or repair those situations. In that midst, we must cry out ever more loudly. That is what we do in the season of Lent, and that's what Christ can do for us. Again, I'd like to say it's only if we see our need for Christ that he can be of any benefit to us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you.